Just before we start, I wondered if I could make you aware of a course uh, that I run called Leadership and Theology Training. It kind of does what it says on the tin. It's a course designed and aimed at people in church leadership, but people who may feel like there's a call to leadership or who want to study theology in a bit more depth. And it's a course I run for two days a, week, uh, two days a month in Milton Keynes. It runs across a two-year program. The details are on the screen. And it might help you if you're wanting to develop either in leadership or theology or both. We get a lot of different speakers in. Um, and if it would, the details are on the screen so you, you know that it's there and you know what to do next. Um, but anyway, we are starting a new series today called God of All Things. And we're going to be looking at a number of different created things, but physical stuff that God has made that reveals to us something of the beauty and glory of God. And we're going to be starting in Ezekiel chapter 3, which is... Not a chapter of scripture we very often preach on, I expect, but Ezekiel chapter 3. And the reason for doing this series is that talking about God always involves God speaking to us using things that we understand in order to talk about who he is. Because God is, he's invisible, isn't he? He's infinite, he's spirit, he's beyond our understanding. So for us to be able to make sense of God, God has to use things that make sense to us in order to be able to explain who he is. And so he often speaks to us in what theologians call anthropomorphic language. That is, anthropo, human, morphic, shaped. So human-shaped language, or physical stuff, things that we understand. You know, pots and glass and honey and rocks and all kinds of things, pigs, you know, donkeys, all kinds of things that God has made, rainbows, sheep. And he says, look, I want you to look at these things, and that will reveal to you something of who I am. And there's the other side of that, of course, which is that it's not just that we talk about God using human-shaped things, it's that creation is itself kind of God-shaped. In the, to take the question, why, why is there such a thing as a rock? Why do rocks exist? You might say, well, it's just because they're minerals. They just have to be. What else could the world be made of? But, of course, God is not made of physical matter, right? God doesn't have a physical body until he takes flesh in the Lord Jesus. So God is spirit, and he's invisible, yet he's made a physical world filled with things like rocks. So why did God make rocks? And partly, surely, it's because in creating a rock, something about its steadiness, its ever-presentness, the fact that it gets weathered by wind and waves for thousands and millions of years, and it doesn't change, tells us something about God. So it's not just that we go, oh, God, I'm trying to think, what's God like? Oh, he's a bit like a rock. But it's like God is saying, I am creating rocks in some ways that you will see in them something of what I'm like. So it's not just that our language about God is anthropomorphic or human-shaped. It's that God's creation is theomorphic or God-shaped in that sense. And in this series, we're going to look at a few examples of that and ask why it is that God made a material world and what are some of the things that he's made reveal about him? Because the earth is full of physical things, material wonders. Rocks and zebras and mangoes and oak trees and lagoons and rhinos and all kinds of things. You think, why did God make all this stuff? And the answers scripture gives are things like, it's because the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims the work of his hands. Or as Paul's saying at the end of Romans chapter 11, isn't it? Who, who has known the mind of God? Who's been God's counsellor? For from him and through him and to him are all things, like everything there is points towards him and says, look, God's great. So we're going to spend a few weeks looking at some of the things that God has made and seeing what they reveal about him. And we're going to start in Ezekiel chapter 3 with one of the scariest things God has made, earthquakes. 
We're going to talk about earthquakes. Let's read Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. And he said to me, as God said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you're not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language whose words you can't understand. Surely, if I sent you to such, they'd listen to you. But the house of Israel won't be willing to listen to you, for they aren't willing to listen to me. Because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Behold, I've made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at, uh, dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, all my words that I'll speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears. And go to the exiles, to your people, and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures as they touched one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them, and the sound of a great earthquake. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who were dwelling by the Kibar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling. And I sat there overwhelmed among them seven days. This is the word of God. Appearances of God in Scripture are often accompanied by earthquakes. So let me give you a few examples. When God appears, earthquakes happen regularly. When God descends on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, the Ten Commandments moment when God meets Moses on the mountain, the mountain quakes, Exodus 19.18. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And the people quake too. It says in Exodus 19 verse 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So the mountain is trembling and the people are trembling as well. So like a quake. When God speaks... It shakes the whole created world. Another example, Psalm 29, verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. When Isaiah sees the glory of God, another example. The temple shakes to its foundations. It's a very famous passage. One, talking about these angels, one called to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. So Isaiah sees a vision of God, he hears the angel shouting, and the temple is shaking to its boots. I actually preached on that passage at a Bible weekend uh, up in Lincolnshire in a big top marquee, you know, one of those huge big top things? Thousands of people. And I was preaching on this passage and I was trying to read it. And the red arrows, you know, those sort of supersonic stunt planes that fly around, they're amazing display planes with the sort of jets and things, they are doing their training session right outside. 
And so I'm talking about the foundations of the threshold shaking at the voice and the thunderous roar of these angels calling to each other. And as I'm trying to say it, the red arrows are shooting past and there's this deafening roar and the entire tent is just filled with the rumble of noise. So I just have to stop preaching and there's this sort of worshipful moment in the tent as people are going, wow, the voice of God, like thunder, suddenly becomes very real to you. The, the power, the shaking, quaking power of the glory and voice of God. Another example, when God visits his people to rescue Jerusalem, there will be earthquakes. Isaiah 29 verse 5, and in an instant, suddenly, you'll be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise. When Jesus dies, there is an earthquake. Matthew 27, 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And when the centurion and those with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Then two days later, Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday. There's another earthquake. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb and behold, there was a great earthquake. And then finally, they're not, it's not the last one, but a seventh one, when the kingdom comes, everything gets shaken. Hebrews 12, 26. At that time, back in Sinai, the voice, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised, once more, I'm going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens. And there's loads of other examples. Revelation and elsewhere in Scripture. The question is, why on earth is that true? Why is the Bible filled with examples of God appearing and suddenly everything shaking? Why are there always these earthquakes? What's the deal here? Why, why do earthquakes exist? What have they been created for? And how are they used in Scripture to show us something of God? And I think the answer has to do with glory. Now look at Ezekiel chapter 3, and particularly Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 12. You'll have noticed as we read it, I expect, knowing we were doing earthquakes. Ezekiel 3 verse 12, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. And imagine hearing an earthquake speaking to you. That's effectively what Ezekiel said it was like. The rumbling, thunderous noise was like an earthquake voice declaring something. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place. And if we look at all the biblical examples of earthquakes, right, Mount Sinai with Moses, or Isaiah's vision, or Ezekiel's call, many others, I think what they all have in common is that they accompany, these earthquakes accompany and reinforce the revelation of the glory of God coming. You even see there's a, perhaps even a, a, a connection with the words in Hebrew. That quaking, charads, is caused by glory, chabods. You get, when glory comes, you get quaking. And the words are similar enough that you think, oh, I wonder if there's a connection there. And my question would be, well, why is that? Why are these earthquake moments when God appears, they all seem to be connected with the glory of God coming down. Why does the glory of God coming down cause an earthquake whenever it happens? And to answer that question, we need to understand what the Hebrews meant by glory. So if I say the word glory to you in English, probably the sort of image you think of is to do with brightness and light. That glory is sort of, is based on the Latin word gloria, but we would generally think of splendor or brightness or brilliance. I expect that to say something is glorious, it seems like you think a very bright light like the sun or something. That's probably how you hear the word glory or maybe glorious jewels or sparkling but it's it's the idea of brilliance and lightness 
The, the Hebrew concept of glory, the word for glory, is actually quite different from that. I think it, it connects, it relates. But the Hebrew word is more to do with the idea of weight or heaviness. Right? The Hebrew chabod is the word that you might use for something being very heavy, very deep, very rich and substantial. Right? Paul talks about it actually in 2 Corinthians. Talks, we are achieving, the sufferings we're in, are achieving an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, the glory of God is so heavy that you can't compare it to anything. The glory is a sort of density, if you like, of glory. It's a rich, deep, meaty, substantial boom. And that, in a sense, is different from the way we would think. Well, glory would have to be a sort of bright light, and for them it might be a very heavy weight, and they're, they're different. Glory, in that sense, for, in, it, in Hebrew imagery, is more like heaviness, or we might even say gravitas, right? In, I know gravitas sounds like a slightly stuffy word for it, but I think that's not a bad... It's like the idea of the depth and richness of glory. So in the Old Testament, when the Ark of the Lord, the presence of God, gets captured by the Philistines, it's described as the glory departing from Israel, Chabot. And then immediately we hear that the hand of God was heavy, chabot, or chabet, upon the Philistines. It's like the glory's gone, and as a result, the heaviness of God is now falling upon the people who've captured the ark. And the word's the same. So people would associate, you might have heard the word Ichabod, but the idea, yeah, that the glory of God has gone, and it's gone to these people where it's now heavy upon them. So the idea of glory is heaviness. God's glory isn't just his splendor, and his beauty and his radiance, but it's his, his weight, his gravitas, his depth, his substantialness. That's what glory is. And that, to me, is closely connected with why earthquakes seem to always happen whenever the glory of God comes. Because what happens when a very deep, rich, heavy object collides with a light, flimsy, flighty, ephemeral, floaty one? The answer is, you get displacement. Right? When something very big and heavy and substantial lands in something very light and flimsy, the big heavy thing displaces the light flimsy thing. Right? So the classic example of this is just great fun. I love doing it. I call them like a honeypot, you know, where you make yourself into a little bomb and you jump into a swimming pool. Particularly when my kid's nearby or maybe if I'm being a bit mischievous and my wife is saying, I need to keep my hair dry and sort of jump into the pool and try and splash as near as possible. And of course the reason it's fun is because as you land in the water, you displace the water because you are, at that point, moving so fast and you're substantial, you move the water aside by your arrival, don't you? And that's one of the reasons why jumping in like that is fun. You cause the splash because something a little bit more substantial has landed in something lighter and has displaced it around itself. So there's no negotiation. I jump in, the water jumps out. It, the water doesn't go, mm, there's a little bit of a conflict here. The water's like, no, we're going to move to make space for you. And that's what would happen if you effectively get a water quake, right? That's basically what happens when you jump into a pool. You get the same thing, I'm sure, if you were to get a... Imagine a, a frozen lake, an English winter, ice maybe inch thick or something. But then you were to get a giant gold block, multiple cubic meters wide and high, and you would drop the block of gold into the middle of a frozen lake. You would get an ice quake. Right, the gold block would go straight through the ice, the ice would and you get this massive ice quake which would reverberate out and the ice would have to make space for the weighty gold block that's landed in the middle of the frozen lake. Right? The transient stuff 
makes space for the weight of glory, you might say. The, the substantial, deep, rich thing lands in the middle of the light thing, and the light thing has to reorganize around the new reality that's sitting in the middle. And when God's glory falls on the earth, the ultimate weight of glory, the ultimately rich, deep, beautiful, deep, uh, heavy, substantial, gravity-filled substance in the universe, that when the glory of God descends onto the earth, the lightweight world of physical reality, all these things, gets displaced by the glory of God, and there's an earthquake. It's like God comes down, and the earth has to go, whoa, something of greater glory and richness than us has arrived, and we better make space for him. We get an earthquake. And we actually get the same thing with people. If you notice, when many of the stories I just alluded to, when God's glory falls, the people quake as well. So God's glory falls and Moses and Israel go, oh, we, better, we better reorganize around the new reality that's here. Or, you know, Moses and Isaiah uh, and Ezekiel, you get a self-quake. Isaiah goes, woe is me, I'm lost. I've got sinful lips. I've said bad things about people. Oh God, please forgive me. There's not, what hope have I got to stand before a holy God? Because the self of the human person is light and flimsy and shallow in comparison with the glory. The glory of God, which has come into the moment. And as a result, we get displacement and we get what you might call a self-quake. Which is just as the gold block drives, you know, displaces the ice. And as while I jump into a swimming pool, displace the water. God's glory descends and we get an earthquake. And God's glory descends on you or me or Isaiah or Moses and Ezekiel. And you get a self-quake. You get people saying, God, your glory is too much for me to encounter and remain as I am. I must allow you to be the new dominant heavy reality in my world and I'm going to reorganize myself around you. And that's happened to me in an instant and it scares me. And that, by the way, is how you know that you've met the real God. Not a figment of your imagination. You see, if you meet the made-up God, the God that you, well, I don't really like to think about God like that. I want to think about God like this. Then what you'll find is that God doesn't actually displace you at all. God comes and just sort of neatly adapts to your life and everything stays the same. It's like, I've done this before with an illustration, some of you may have seen me do it, where you sort of get a you know, bucket of water and then you just drop a, a piece of paper on top of the water. So yeah, that's God. It's nice. I'm the water. I'm substantial. God's lighter than me because I made him up, right? I, just, I like to think of God like this. He's just a God who does that and says this. And, oh yeah, it's all good. He, he understands. He's fine. And he just sits neatly on the top of my life. Oh, there's, there's God. Yeah, just take him wherever I go. He's, it's nice having him there. But that's not the real God at all because he's not as glorious as you. He's far less glorious or weighty, which is why he's sitting neatly on the top of your life. But when you meet the real one, it's more like dropping a brick into a washing up bowl of water. The water goes everywhere. And your entire life has to be reorganized around the weight of glory, just as I would now if an elephant was to fall out of the sky and come crashing through the ceiling. I'd suddenly have to make space for this new, weighty, substantial reality in the middle of the room, and everything would have to give way before the presence of the weight of glory. So if you meet the real God, you have the kind of encounter that Moses did, or Ezekiel did, or Isaiah did, you start saying things like, blessed is the glory of the Lord in its place, and you find your whole world is reorganized around the weight of glory as he lands in your life, changing all your priorities, displacing your sin and forcing you to reorient yourself and all your priorities around him. So when you encounter an earthquake in scripture or something shaking or quaking or trembling, ask yourself, is this connected in some way to the glory of God? It would be worth asking that question. 
So let me finish with a classic example, which is Easter weekend. I don't know how many times I had read the gospel story before I noticed that there were earthquakes in it. I've read the gospel story, I don't know how many times I've done, but many, many dozens of times, and I just hadn't noticed, really, the earthquakes. I'm sure I'd seen the word, but it hadn't registered with me, and it certainly hadn't registered with me that there were two of them. That there's an earthquake as Jesus dies, and then there's an earthquake on Easter Sunday morning as Jesus rises. And I assume a, a tremor in Jerusalem rather than a worldwide thing and destroying the nation. It doesn't say that, but just there was a shaking of the ground, and there's one as Jesus dies and one as Jesus rises, and I'd never noticed it before. Jesus dies, and we're told immediately, at Matthew 27, 51, the earth shook and the rocks were split. That's the, if you were there, one of the things you'd have noticed is the sky is dark. You might, if you're near the temple, you might have noticed the temple curtains torn in two and the earth is shaking. Most, most people, at the moment Jesus died, would notice, wow, it's like a tremble. And then, just a few verses later, Jesus rises from the dead and we get another earthquake. Uh, Matthew 28 and verse 2. The king of the earth dies and causes a sin quake, right? Jesus' death, his sacrificial death on behalf of us, him taking all the things you've ever done wrong on his own shoulders and dying to conquer their power is so heavy and such a substantial, deep, rich, glorious, gravitas-filled moment that when he dies, the power of sin is shaken and the the whole of Jerusalem experiences an earthquake. Because his death is too glorious for the power of sin to withstand. And so there is an earthquake, a shaking, because the, the king of the earth has died. And then on Easter Sunday, we have the exact opposite experience in a sense. The king of the earth rises, and once again, the power of death is not strong enough to hold him back any longer. And so his resurrection causes a death quake. It's like the power of death, the most powerful thing that there is, the the swallower of all things, the one that everyone is going to have to face eventually, is not powerful enough to hold back the man who is victorious over the grave because Jesus' victory is too heavy, it's too deep, too rich, too substantial for death to stay in its place. So the land trembles and the stone is displaced. It's like in that song we sing. The ground began to shake, the stone was rolled away, his perfect love could not be of... You know that song? Couldn't be overcome. Why? So the ground is shaking and the stone gets moved because there is an earthquake responding to the descent of, or the ascent out of the grave, of the glorious Son of God. It's like as if the heavy depths of the unshakable, glorious Saviour crash into the lightweight shallows of the enemies of God, sin and death and the devil, and displace them forever. As the earth gives way, so do the powers of darkness. Blessed be the glory of the Lord from its place, says Ezekiel. I heard a voice like an earthquake. Blessed be the glory of God from his place. Now, some of you are wondering, what do we do with this? Right? What should I, what did my response be? Okay, earthquakes, glory of God, yeah, I see it. What's my response to, at that point? I think the best response we can make is the response that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, which I quoted earlier, when the writer is reflecting on the fact that the voice of God once shook the earth, but in the future is going to shake the earth and the heavens. And if you like, he's basically saying, if, you've, if you thought Sinai was like a quake, you haven't seen anything. Wait for the day when the heavens are shaken as well. And this is what the writer says we should do about it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 to 29. Therefore, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. 
And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What do you do with the idea that God is so glorious that he's going to reorient everything in your life around him? And what you do is you say, Lord, I am grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. In fact, should we pray? Let me just lead us in prayer as we close. Father, thank you that we get to receive a kingdom that can't be shaken. That ultimately, even though the mountains fall and the earth gives way and the cities collapse into the sea, the kingdom of God will not be shaken. And therefore, Lord, we can have gratitude and we can worship God with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Lord, we thank you that you are the rich, glorious reality in the world. That every time there is an earthquake somewhere, it's a reminder to us again of the fact that some things in the world are more glorious than this physical matter we can see around us. And that you have all the weight of glory contained in yourself, Lord. With the saints past and future, we say, oh, blessed is the glory of the Lord in its place. Amen.